Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Ray Mabus burst on the national scene in the 80s as the youngest governor in America, the governor of Mississippi, a new age Democrat uh, who was determined to usher his state into the 21st century. Uh, he finished his public career with eight years as Secretary of the Navy, in which he thought about what the Navy needed to be in the 21st century. He came by the Institute of Politics recently to talk about all this, and we sat down for this conversation. Ray Mabus, great to see you again, and to see you here at the Institute of Politics. Uh, Great to be here, David. You have an incredible story, and you've traveled, um, you know, millions of miles around this planet, uh, many of them logged in the service of the country. Uh, some of them on other expeditions. But it all started in a small town in Mississippi, so I want to hear a little bit about that uh, and uh, how you... how let, Let's chart this journey. Okay. Well, I was born and grew up in a town of about a 1,000 people, Ackerman, Mississippi. My uh, family's been there for since the 1830s, and I just picked my parents really carefully. Hmm. Uh, My dad and his brother owned the hardware store, and they were all, my dad, his brother, and his sister were all born around the turn of the 20th century. He was a much older dad, almost 50 when I was born. But one was born in 1894, 1896, and 1901, and at a time when not many people finished high school, all of them got at least two degrees. Really? My uncle was- Why? I don't know. I cannot figure that out. I mean, your uh, grandparents? My my grandfather, who I did not know, he died before I was born, was, from all accounts, a very nice man, but uh, somebody who had failed in business, failed as a farmer. Uh, my grandmother, who died when I was four, um, I think was the driving force, but I I never got a good answer on that. My uncle was a West Pointer. My aunt spoke and taught four languages hmm. at various universities and colleges around the country. And so... That's amazing. So maybe it was your grandfather's failures that encouraged the kids to, to I don't know. aspire they really, to something more. They really loved their dad, but all the letters were to their mom. Hmm. And I've Interesting. still got some... And some your mom letters. was a basketball coach. She was. And great athlete. Five feet tall. Uh, and uh, played in college at Delta State. Uh, She was fierce. She -hmm. was absolutely fierce. And the story that encapsulates her to me is the Neshoba County Fair is the biggest political gathering in Mississippi every year. And it's outside. It's in July. It's hot as all get out. 
And she showed up probably about four hours early to hear me speak when I was running for governor. And a guy came down and sat next to her. He was twice as big as she was and half her age. She was almost 80 then. And he had a really nasty sign about me. And she looked at him as a little white-haired old lady and very sweetly said, can I see your sign? And he (laughs) said, sure, and gave it to her. And she ripped it in half and said, that's my little boy. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And did he? And he did. That's good good work. That's good staff work she did there. So Neshoba County is a name that people remember, not just for that political rally, but for a less happy history related to the uh, to the civil rights years and the struggles that went on there, and you grew up uh, in the middle of all of that. What? What? Tell me about your memories of uh, what Mississippi was like in that era. Well, I I grew up and went to a segregated school. My overwhelming memory, the one memory that I have, was when James Meredith integrated Ole Miss. My home is about 80 miles south of Oxford, where Ole Miss is, and about 40 miles north of Neshoba County. So right in the middle of all this. And, you know, I was a freshman in high school, and there was a talk of the school, and I came home and said something smart to my dad. And he just set me down. And I would have a lot rather been gotten a whipping than have him talk to me. And he talked to me for a couple of hours about the rule of law, the equality of people and how disappointed he was in me and he didn't want to ever hear me say anything like that again and just sort of how brave he was um and my mother uh, at the same time i uh, we had a straw vote in 1964 for president 234 for goldwater one for johnson here i am the one for johnson and my parents got all sorts of bad phone calls about that really yeah and that 240 whatever for Goldwater was all based on the Civil Rights Act and yeah and I got up in front of a segregated high school and said the reason we ought to vote for Lyndon Johnson was that he passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that also didn't go over really well but the fact that I got elected governor 25 years later showed that something had happened do you uh, it sure did do you um did you have uh, friendships with uh, African-American kids? I did. But like a lot of white kids and African-American kids, we were friends when we were very small. And then we went to different schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those friendships tended to, to wane over time. I mean, Ackerman was too little to be segregated by geography. I mean, uh, so you knew all sorts of African-Americans, but the friendships that were so close when you were three, four, five years old, you were playmates, you didn't didn't know and didn't care about the difference, but then you got sent to wildly different schools. Yeah, and, yeah. And, they, and you tended to lose touch. So Mississippi at that time, Philadelphia, Mississippi, was uh, where the three civil rights workers were found uh, murdered by the Klan. Um, You had Medgar Evers, head of the NAACP, shot in his driveway. And, of course, all of the 
uh, actions against protesters, the Freedom Summer, and so, which is where the three civil rights workers were killed. W- were you aware of all of that? I was aware of it, but it really didn't touch my life that much day to day. You pointed out my dad had this insatiable curiosity about the world, so in the summers we would go. I went across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and I was in Iran for the first uprising against the Shah, so we weren't there a lot of the summers. Um, but, yeah, I was very aware of it and just how violent it was and how much hatred there was. And and it was, I couldn't understand it. I, I literally couldn't figure out why people were were that hard over and that willing to do just unspeakable things uh, to to keep a, a system in place that made no sense and was even at that age you know I could figure out that it was one of the reasons Mississippi was so poor and, and um, was so it, it, it just wasn't doing what it needed to do and you went off to Ole Miss I did that's where that's where my dad and my uncle had gone and uh, they were winning national football championships and had a great education. By the time you got there, that was obviously after Meredith. Uh, and were But not long. And, I got and, there in the fall of 66, and he entered in 62. So And were there... Um, and were there African American students there? Were there were, was there a presence of... There, there were, but not many. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of... I mean, Ole Miss is... 75 miles from Memphis, and so I was at Ole Miss the day Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis. And, you know, I remember I remember people, some people, not all, but some, being very happy about that. And a guy I knew well and still, is a, he's a lawyer in Jackson now, and uh, he was in law school then. He went out in front of the Lyceum and um, lowered the flag to half staff, and a bunch of football players beat him up for it. Hmm. Uh, so it was uh, it was still really raw then. And a lot of my friends had um, who were you know four or five years older that I made that I got to know at Ole Miss either because they were in law school or they were back teaching or something. Uh, they were there when it had happened, and it, as I said, it was still jagged and raw. And you were uh, you went off uh, and got a master's degree at Johns Hopkins in political science. Did you have a sense when you were at that age that someday you might want to come back and and confront some of this and change it? Oh yeah, um, I followed John Kennedy's presidential race. And um, I was 11, and I just thought this was the most thrilling thing I'd ever seen. And then I, um, I really followed Bobby Kennedy's 68 race and, in fact, wrote my master's thesis on his, his election and whether he would have gotten the Democratic nomination. What was your conclusion? And he would. I, I interviewed individual delegates mm-hmm. all around the country. And We're here in Chicago, of course, <laughs> where that, con- that convention took place. After he was killed, calamitous convention. But you know, my uh, conversations with the various dailies um, suggest to me that you know he, that Mayor Daly was 
prepared. You know, that was the big deal that Bobby Kennedy had a win to prove to Daly and other power brokers in the party that he could that he could yeah. that he could win the nomination that he deserved the nomination and he had won California and was yeah and he, the only the thing test. he had lost was Oregon mm-hmm. he had won Indiana he had, he had won California and um, that was in the days of the the bosses I mean there was a quote that I remember that said that if Richard Daly told uh, people to vote for Ho Chi Minh for uh, to be the Democratic nominee, that he'd get all the Illinois delegates in half of Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. I can't speak for the Pennsylvania part. <laughs> Certainly back then he had an enormous amount of clout, but he also uh, was a, pra- a pragmatist. And so uh, I think he saw in Kennedy a way to overcome the, yeah. the I, stigma of the war. Yeah. I always wanted to go back to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I ran for everything there was to run for in high school, ran for everything there was to run for at Ole Miss, got beat every single time, mm-hmm. and uh, went away and spent 10 years getting a master's, being in the Navy. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Uh, what what uh, You got this master's degree, and the first thing you did was join the Navy, and that was uh, in uh, 1970, so right in the midst of the Vietnam War. Um, what... what, uh, what provoked you to join the Navy? Well, again, that father I picked so carefully, um, he had served in the Navy in World War II, and he really had a strong sense that you ought to, you ought to serve, uh, whether in the military or something else. And, and I, I had the same feeling. I was against the war in Vietnam, but, um, but I, thought you, I thought you ought to go and serve. And the time, my time in the Navy... Uh, as I look back on it, it's one of the most consequential times in my life. I'm not sure that the things I've been fortunate enough to do, I would have done. If what, I what, done. Tell me about your Navy experience. Well, I was 21 years old. I was a division officer on a cruiser. So I had 60 people that all of a sudden I was their mother, their father, their priest, their rabbi, their banker, their psychiatrist. And, um, you know, you grow up really fast and you learn responsibility and you learn to do something bigger than yourself. Um, it's it's an experience that if you miss, I think you've really missed something. A lot of people do miss it. Uh, very few people serve these days. I think one of the things that we've lost is uh, the camaraderie that flows from, uh, from uh, being together in service uh, of the country. Um, you must have had a very diverse group of, of uh, it was all men, I assume, under yeah. your uh, command at that time. Yeah, I met people that I've never met before and I've never met since. Um, I mean, even though I was in politics, I met all sorts of people. Uh, you know, I had a, had a seaman named Greco from New Jersey who wanted to go home and open a garage, an auto repair place. Um had um, Hispanics from California mm-hmm. that uh, just the the sort of breadth and depth, and that was at a time when people were still getting drafted, so into the Navy. Right. And about half of them didn't want to be there, uh, and about half of them wanted to stay there all their lives. And that 
that was sort of an interesting leadership experience. And did you guys see action when you were there? No, I was in the North Atlantic in the Mediterranean the mm-hmm. whole time. Um, water looks like water, and I questioned a little bit my decision to join the Navy when I got seasick every <laughs> every day, the first day we went out. And, and uh, you, uh, and then you came back and you went for more education. I did. I I went to Harvard to law school. My ship had been out of Newport, Rhode Island. I'd spent a lot of time there. And I didn't particularly want to go to law school, didn't particularly want to be a lawyer, but I figured that school was easier than work. And so I applied to the top five law schools in the country and said, if I got in, I'll go. And Harvard let me in three weeks after I applied. And uh, it's the worst possible thing I could have done for Mississippi politics. Yeah. Yeah, um, that got raised huh, from time to time. From time to time. But I, I've, I, well, I never ran a campaign that wasn't raised. Uh, in fact, my first name, I'm pretty sure, was Harvard Educated because that was the way I was referred to. Yeah. And, but I knocked it down with a story that had the added advantage of being true. Um, I was back in my hometown walking down Main Street and met Mrs. Whittington, the librarian. And she said, What are you going to do now that you're out of the military? And I said, I'm going to law school. She said, are you going to Ole Miss, son? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm going to Harvard. She looked at me and said, couldn't you get in to Ole Miss? <laughs> <laughs> and was serious about the whole thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, – and that was a pretty transformative thing, too. I, uh, I actually got into all five of those schools, and um, the reason I picked Harvard, besides just being familiar with it, was – they gave grades at the time, and Yale didn't. And I wanted to see how I could do. I might have a little competitive streak in me. Yeah. Uh, I trust well is the answer. Did pretty well. And um, ultimately, I mean, you you clerked. You worked for a, law, uh, a, a prominent law firm. But you did find your way back to Mississippi. I did. And how that happened? Well, everything I did was – Terrible for Mississippi politics because I clerked for a judge that helped integrate the South. And then I worked for uh, Sergeant Shriver's law firm. So the Kennedy School mm-hmm. stuff stuck. But a guy that I had admired greatly in Mississippi politics, uh, who I'd volunteered for his first race for governor in 1967 when I was in college, William Winter, uh, ran for governor the third time. First two times he had been crushed by just terrible people. And on filing deadline, he dropped in his papers uh, in 79 and and won, uh, sort of against all odds. He had told people he wasn't going to run, that uh, he he was through. And he, he invited me back home. And uh, when I told my law firm, they, one of my friends said, how much is the governor going to pay you? And I said, about a third of what I make here. And he said, why would the governor want somebody that dumb on his staff? <laughs> You um, he, and he was one of uh, a, a wave of sort of New South governors, including Bill Clinton uh, and uh, Jim Hunt in North Carolina, who uh, Dick Riley in South Carolina, um, Chuck Robb a little bit later, yeah, in, in Virginia. In Virginia, yeah. Uh, what 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 is it that that uh, characterized all of these governors? Well, they. They were post-civil rights, so they didn't have to um, 
didn't have to mouth this stuff about segregation. And they were, were all passionate about education. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, William Winter was ahead of his time in 1979. He still is. 96 but, years old. 96 years old and still going strong. And but he, It's hard to be ahead of your time when you're 96. <laughs> well, he's a... He's still ahead of where his fellow citizens are. I'll yes, put it that way. Yes, yes. And he um, he had a group of young men. Uh, we were very derisively called the Boys of Spring. His name was Winter, and a Mississippi legislator dubbed us that. And we sort of owned it. We had buttons made up, and um, we, he wanted to push for education. And we were the only state in the union without compulsory education, uh, legacy of the civil rights movement, one of two without public kindergartens. And we had tried twice in the legislature and lost both times. And this Boys of Spring convinced the governor to, instead of quitting, to go big. And so we ran a campaign for education. We ran a, uh, we, we had rallies, we, uh, Went on TV, I made, I think, about 700 speeches for education around Mississippi. And uh, he called the legislature into special session, and every one of the leaders said, we're not going to do this because there was a tax increase involved. And and the public opinion was just so overwhelming. And we worked closely with the local newspaper, the Clarion Ledger. Overwhelming in what way? At just saying, we want better education. We're mm-hmm. tired of this. We're sick of this. And if a legislator got two or three phone calls, it was an emergency, and we could generate two or three hundred in an evening. The Clarion Ledger won a Pulitzer for, for covering it. And it was called the Christmas Miracle. It was the first Education Reform Act passed in the United States. An interesting thing happened during that campaign for... Uh for education reform in that you, uh, the governor asked for information from the state auditor on uh, the performance of the schools, and, and what happened? Well, I called over to the auditor's office um, and asked him to send me the last three audits on the capital, on the um, county that the capital's in, Hines County, and that was in 1982, and they sent me 75, 76, and 77, I thought it was a clerical error, and I called them back up, and they said, no, no, we're five years late doing the audits. And So after we got the information that we were looking for, I started reading about the auditor's office. It was the most powerful office I'd ever seen. You had um, 220 accountants working for you. You got to audit every penny of money that anybody spent of tax money. So the governor, the legislature, the county, school districts, hospitals, and all the federal money that came into Mississippi. And so even though I'd never had an accounting course, it wasn't a requirement. You just had to get more votes. And This was I an aha in. moment for you, huh? It was. Um, winter was term limited. I was a bachelor, and I thought if I'm ever going to run for anything, now's the time. And I ran against a guy who'd been in the office for 32 years. I was given absolute. That's, that was like most of your life. What were you, 35 then? 34. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, nobody gave me a chance. I got outspent five to one. And um, I won in a landslide. I got 51.3% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the one election 
if I'd known then what I know now, I never would have run because I couldn't have won. And uh, but it was it was a great office, and I think I think and a lot of good was done. And you became a huge thorn in the side to the whole political establishment there. I did. Um, he, he says you can't see this because we're of course a podcast, <laughs> but there's a big smile on Ray's face as he remembers the trouble that he created for office holders across the state of Mississippi. What what well, did you do? Well, nobody had. <clears throat> The auditor hadn't gone after anybody for misspending money or stealing, and uh, and I decided to do it. And I I got up and spoke to the county officials' association three days after I was sworn in, and I said, um, if it's a law, I'm going to enforce it. If you think it's a bad law, get it changed, but don't ask me not to enforce it. And <clears throat> we started really aggressively auditing people. And when we would find problems, and they weren't hard to find. I mean, people were pretty open about stealing. Uh, everybody knew in Mississippi knew that folks were stealing, and they just didn't think anybody would be dumb enough to do something about it. And we would call up the, the person that we were investigating, uh, tell them, you know, we need to see you, bring your lawyer, bring your accountant. And we'd lay out what we had found and ask them if we were wrong and what to do about it. And if they, if they couldn't, then I, I demanded the money back. I had a press conference. Um, every senior Democratic official in Mississippi called me to explain how I was committing political suicide, that these county supervisors were the most powerful people in the state, and that I had a bright future if I had just learned how to play the game. Uh, and that probably in 20 years, I could probably run for governor. And the FBI and I did a sting operation. Operation uh, Pretense. Operation Pretense. Uh -huh. And um, early one morning, uh, the FBI arrested about 70 uh, supervisors. And... Um, and my auditors went into every courthouse in the, in the state and seized the books and didn't lose a case uh, against them uh, and removed uh, and I think basically changed the way uh, government was run in Mississippi, or at least at the, at the local level. When I got to be governor, we changed it um, legally to, to keep these folks to, to make it more transparent and to make it um, more responsive to, to to people and less uh, less able to less able to steal. And this is something that probably cuts across party lines. I mean, this would aggravate voters uh, of both parties that their local officials were stealing oh, uh, it, uh, right and left. A good platform it, to run for governor. It was. It was. So I ran for governor four years later. And in the Democratic primary against eight people, got the biggest vote anybody's ever gotten in Mississippi. Um, as I said, everybody told me I was committing political suicide, but it seemed like the right thing to do. Um, and and the story that when I knew I was going to win, because um, we were doing all sorts of polling, as you do, and the, the numbers mm -hmm. just looked too good to, to be true. But I was in Ripley, Mississippi, 
at a rally the Saturday before the Tuesday vote in, in the first primary. And I didn't like rallies because the only people that go are relatives of people running, and usually you don't get many votes there. But I went because a good friend, a big supporter, asked me to go. And, and when I was walking around shaking hands, I met these three guys sitting on a park bench out in front of the courthouse. And, um, you know, I asked them, I said, I'm Ray Mavis. I'm running for governor. I need your help. And talked to him a minute and one of them right before I was leaving sort of motioned me to um, lean in and so I did and he said keep kicking him in the ass son <laughs> and uh, when I left after I made my speech I waved to him and they were standing there talking to a guy running for local office and they acted like they'd never met me never <laughs> seen me and I said you know they're telling him they're going to vote against me yeah, they're going to go in that voting booth and they're going to pull the lever next to my name. Yeah, and that's what happened. Yeah, no, I my uh, in my office here, I'm looking at a picture right there of Harold Washington, the former mayor, the late mayor of Chicago. He ran against the Democratic organization, and he used to say in all his speeches in the African American community, there was an enormous amount of pressure to vote for the machine candidate against him. He would say. Take their money and vote for Harold. <laughs> so, same principle. Same principle. That's uh, right. And you you took up the crusade for education that Bill Winter had uh, started uh, when you were governor. It's the only way up. It's the only only way that I know to dramatically improve life and outcomes. You look around the country today. And the places that have the best educational systems are the ones doing the best. Um, you look. At, In fact, your program was called Best. Best, better education for success tomorrow. And you campaigned uh, uh, vigorously for it, um, but you were never able to pass it. I passed it. Were, weren't yeah. able to fund it. Didn't get it. Didn't get it funded. I wanted to fund it with a lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, had to get a two-thirds vote because it was. Uh, why didn't you? You didn't want to raise sales or income taxes. Did you feel that was just politically not viable? Um, no, I thought sales taxes were pretty high, and they were pretty regressive tax. Uh, income tax, frankly, just wasn't going to raise enough money mm-hmm. to do it. And not a single state that touched us had a lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, now they all do. And... The, the, there was an annual lot of provision in our Constitution, so I had to get a two-thirds vote and um, passed it twice in the House and once in the Senate and lost it the second time in the Senate. Now, interestingly enough, after I left office, the legislature um, put it on the ballot by the lottery, and it passed. Uh, it got 60%, uh, even though they've never in- implemented one. And... Along the line, mostly Republican governors have uh, have funded best until probably more than half of it is now instituted and in law. Now, they don't say where it came from. They certainly don't give any credit. But um, but a lot of the a lot of the ideas and, and I still think the ideas, I mean, we instead of measuring just student achievement, like no child left behind, just testing, we did it on 
we said we're going to measure a lot more things. So test scores, but also teacher attendance, student attendance, um, community involvement, percentage of money spent on classroom education versus administration. And if a school got better compared to itself one year to the next, we were going to give it two things. One was money, $1,000 for every teacher and $500 for every other person, so lunchroom workers, custodians, uh, school bus drivers. And there were only a couple of requirements. One was that 70% of the money they could give to themselves, but the rest of it had to go back to the school. And nothing could go for sports. Everything had to go for academics. That was the most controversial. I bet. Part of, part of the whole thing. And then the second thing we were going to give them was every time they got better, we would take off a of state regulation until you could reach a thing called lighthouse status, which you had no state regulation. And you just sign a contract at the beginning of the year saying, here's our outcome. Here's how our kids are going to do. Here's how many we're going to make sure this percent mm-hmm. graduates. Um and, you know, frankly, I don't care how many school days there are. I don't care what textbooks you use. I don't care what um, the qualifications of your teachers are as long as the result is good. And that we know what to do. I mean, there are about a thousand things you can do to make schools better. We've never had the political will to do it. Well, speaking of political will, you, you – uh, uh, in a sense, died on the cross of education reform in uh, in Mississippi in your in your reelect. Part of it was that that you expended so much political capital on that. Part of it was Mississippi's reaction to the guy from Harvard bringing in his smart ass young, you know, idealistic professionals. Uh, the New York Times said. Uh, this is a quote, Mr. Mavis, whose Ivy League pedigree and state-of-the-art New South Oratory gave him the image of something of a Porsche politician in a Chevy pickup state. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Well, obviously, I don't like it much, but um, and I think I was, <clears throat> I think all things considered, I'm more of a more of a Ford F-150 sort of sort of politician. But no, you're right. Um, and I, a lot of change. I, I pushed a lot of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some of it was stuff like I appointed the first woman ever head of a highway patrol in the country. Uh, first time a woman had ever – my chief investigator as when I was state auditor became head of the highway patrol. And, you know, when, when I was running for re-election, everybody else running saying, when I get in there, I'm going to appoint somebody qualified. That meant male. I also appointed African-Americans uh, to 40% of the jobs that, that I had available. And not to quote traditionally black jobs. It mm-hmm. was to the head of the state tax commission and head of the Department of Finance and Administration. And, and that rubbed people the wrong way. Um, and, you know, I made some knucklehead decisions as governor. Um, I mean, healthcare came back to bite me because I, we had three charity hospitals. They were terrible. Um, highest infant mortality, eight percent, eight percent of the beds were filled. No licensed doctors at any of them. 
And by closing them, I could cover 100,000 more Mississippians with Medicaid. But I didn't do a good enough job in terms of explaining to people Mm -hmm. the connection and why I was closing these things. And people, even though they were terrible hospitals, said, well, they have to take me if I I go there. Um, And coldest election day in history, as far as I know, 100,000 fewer people voted than Mm -hmm. had voted four years before. I was, uh, the Saturday before the Tuesday election, I was 17 points up and in a published poll by the, by the Clarion Ledger. And it was right. It tracked our internal polls. Well, that must, have meant, that must have made losing all the harder. I don't think losing ever gets easy. And it sounded like you had a lot of practice in high school. <laughs> but, uh, but I tell you, the, the character-building aspects of losing the election are just vastly overrated. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that I decided pretty early on was there were some things that I was going to be willing to lose over. And the main red line for me was race, was if I just wasn't going to go there. And I was going to, I was going to do the stuff like a point. Mississippi's mm-hmm. 39% yeah. African-American. Right. I was just going to do that. And I made, I think I was the first candidate to ever make the same speech in black communities as white communities. And my, my coalition was interesting. It was mainly African-Americans and suburban Republicans mm-hmm. that ended up supporting me. Um, but it was a lot of change. It was really fast. I mean, I was impatient. I thought well, uh, we could, as, I really, as 39 year olds tend to be, <laughs> as 39 year olds tend to be. And, um, and I, I frankly should have done a better job of explaining exactly what I was up to. I think I lost my brand a little bit. Um, can Democrats, uh, uh, can Democrats win in Mississippi in the future? You, you, you know, you may have a Senate race this year that people are going to pay attention to for uh, uh, the seat that Senator Cochran uh, gave up. You'll have to have a pretty um, specific set of circumstances, at least for the next few years. Demographically, it's changing. Mississippi is one of two states that Barack Obama did better at in twelve than he did in '08, mm-hmm. um, and. If you could get the African-American vote to turn out in accordance with its population, which we've never been able to do, even President Obama was not able to do that. Uh, Usually, President Obama got 32, 33% of the vote was African-American. If you can get there, you can win with less than one out of every four white votes, Mm -hmm. which ought to be doable. Um, But... You know, one of the things that just has bothered me no end is that once the Republican Party figured out that if they got all the white votes and the Democrats got all the black votes, they won every time. And it has ripped the fabric of uh, not just Mississippi, but a lot of states apart. And I really thought when I was elected governor in 1987 that Mississippi could lead the country in terms of racial reconciliation. I mean, we weren't geographically segregated. Everybody knew each other. And once the laws, the de jure segregation, once the laws against integration were removed and people were going to school together and, and knowing each other in a different way, I really thought that uh, Mississippi could, could, could be a model of how it, how it worked. And once the, the politics, though, went 
Uh, and 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 I watched it, and all the old segregationist Democrats just moved over and became segregationist Republicans. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the only reason I can come up with for the tremendous shift uh, to the Republican Party in the South. Now, there's this veneer of social um, issues on top, but at the bottom, it's. I made a speech in Mississippi six months ago or so, and I said, we're fighting over the same things we were fighting over for the last 60, 70 years. I mean— Well, you know, but, President Johnson famously yeah, said well, I mean, that when he signed the Civil Rights Act that that he had basically consigned the, the South to the Republicans for— For a generation. Gen, for a generation, yes. He was, he was low <laughs> on, on that one. But, yeah. you know, we're fighting over— Voting is being restricted. Yes. Which Meg Rivers died for, and a right. lot of other people died for right. uh, in the in the civil rights movement. We're we're fighting over education, and you know it's going back to separate and unequal education. Schools are becoming segregated again. Um, you're we're we're fighting over the same ground that we fought over uh, in the 50s and 60s that I and a lot of people, I think, thought had been put behind us, and it just hasn't. And until we figure that out, and, and this president— Do you think, uh, yeah, well, I was going to ask it, about uh, that. Has uh, he, has he's he made just it, made it okay to be racist. He's made it okay to be public about it. Um, he's made it okay to, to, um, to not— to not try to hide it, not, um, not, not, not be ashamed of it. Not, he's just made it okay, and, and that's going to take us a while to recover from. Going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Ray Mabus. You uh, served as ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the Clinton administration. Um, during an interesting time there, there's a lot of ferment. Talk about uh, the Saudi Arabia that you... Uh, saw then, and did you see the leading edges of the movement that would become the terrorist movement? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we had an attack when I was there. We had an attack on an American military facility, um, and we lost seven people. And it was never clear exactly who funded it but osama bin laden was one of the one of the prime suspects uh, he was living in sudan at the time very close by um and so yeah you could you could see it but um you know the saudi arabia that i went into had and still does has a has a lot of issues i mean they got one of the highest birth rates in the world they um, their social contract is you let us rule the Al Saud family and we'll pay for everything, but their population is growing so fast and oil prices have been down. Um, they've got a pretty big dropout problem in high school, but even the people that go on to college and become the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, uh, a third of their time is taken up with Islamic studies. 30% of students take nothing but Islamic studies. The economy is still 90% oil-based. So you've got this 
ever-increasing number of young people, often without many skills, coming into an economy that cannot absorb them, but with the fervor of Wahhabi Islam. That's a bad combination. Yeah. Uh, and something isn't like... That, isn't that sort of the, the bargain that uh, the royal family made, which is to, to fund the Wahhabists uh, in order to, to keep peace in Saudi Arabia, but that ended up getting exported uh, to other places. Yeah, they made that deal a couple hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it did get exported. And it's a real severe brand of Islam. I mean, it's uh, Wahhab, the guy who preached that, said that you ought to practice Islam exactly the way it was practiced in the time of the prophet. You know, so nothing modern, no movies or cars or or anything, telephones, radios. And what the crown prince is doing now in Saudi, um, they've got to move in that direction or it's going to be bad. Now he's, you know, from time to time he undercuts it by buying a $500 million yacht and stuff like that or by locking people up uh, without uh, due process. Yeah. Uh, Jail's a jail. Some Mm -hmm. of them are nicer than others, but it's still a jail. And, um, you know, they, they've got to move in that direction. And the reason I worry about it, partly is oil, but we don't get much oil out of, out of that part of the world anymore, mm-hmm. even though we, the U.S. Navy protects the Straits of Hormuz and protects the Arabian Gulf. The main reason I worry about it is the biggest human migration on Earth every year is the Hajj where three or four million people from around the world come to Saudi to, um, to go to Mecca and Medina. And if you had a government there that was recruiting for terror, that was preaching an anti-U.S., anti-Western message, then I think our lives get more complicated real fast. Mm-hmm. So pursuing a collegial relationship you think is important in the national interest? I think that's in the national interest, but I think at the same time, we have to push them to become more open, more democratic, mm-hmm. to treat women better, uh, because that's in their interest. That's in the interest of stability. Um, and so I, I don't think there's a disconnect there. I mm-hmm. think that we can push. Um, I mean, my notion was when I went, that I was there representing the values of the United States to Saudi Arabia, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I thought it was very important to keep pushing those values, more openness, more transparency, more democracy, more equality. Uh, and, um, And I still think that's important, while at the same time maintaining pretty, pretty close relations. You don't have to agree, but you, You've got to keep, you got to keep pushing, and I think that this this president, this administration, has lost a lot of the moral authority to to do that, to to push people uh, in that direction. That, uh, that we clearly had the moral authority, we clearly had the moral upper hand, uh, particularly under somebody like Barack Obama, and then it just 
has has vanished. I mean, our, our word is no good anymore around the world, and certainly not the values that this administration espouses day in and day out. It's it's just not uh, not something you want to push around the world. You mentioned Barack Obama. You were, uh, I, I remember well, an early supporter of his. You made hundreds of speeches on his behalf. And uh, when he became president, there was one thing that you wanted, uh, and it was the job that you got. Why did you want to be Secretary of the Navy so badly? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's the coolest job on earth. Um, But secondly, it's so big that you can make a difference in so many ways, in so many people's lives. in personnel policies, in energy, where we move the Navy off fossil fuels, and we were big enough to bring a market for alternatives. Uh, in in things like um, rebuilding the Navy and adding American jobs uh, in shipyards. Let me ask you a question about that, because this has been a big issue. In fact, uh, the uh, President Obama and Mitt Romney debated this, I remember, in one of their uh, debates because Romney was uh, saying that you know we didn't have enough ships and and uh, Obama was, was well, sharp in response. Romney said we had the smallest fleet since World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama said our military had fewer horses and bayonets than right. we did in World War One. Yes, I remember that. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure uh, Governor Romney remembers that <laughs> as well. Um, but. Uh, what what is the reality of uh, our uh, preparedness, and how much of a navy do you need in the twenty first century, and what kind of navy do you need in the twenty first century? Well, I'll give you some numbers. Um, in two thousand one, the U.S. Navy had three hundred sixteen ships. By the end of two thousand eight, after one of the great military buildups in our history, we were down to two hundred seventy eight ships. Uh, during that time, the Navy put 41 ships under contract, so they were building 41 ships. That wasn't enough to either keep our fleet from continuing to shrink or— Why did it, it shrink during that period? They just weren't building enough ships, and they were paying way too much for the ships they were building. Um, and I was there for the same amount of time, so seven budget years, eight years total. And instead of 41 ships, I built 86 ships. Did it with a 20% smaller top line, too. And what the Navy and the Marine Corps uniquely give America is presence. Being around the world, uh, around the clock, being at the right place, not at the right time, but all the time. And when you do that, you reassure allies, you deter potential adversaries, and... You're there for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief when these storms hit, things like that. And you got to have enough ships to do that. You know, during the 2016 presidential race, and Governor Romney said we needed a fleet of 350 ships. I don't disagree. Um, I got the Navy back to 308 ships, which is what we were building toward. Uh, They will be there. Next year, 2019. It takes a long time to build a ship. It takes an even longer time to rebuild a Navy. But when he was running, President Trump said, 
350-ship Navy. Well, that's great. I mean, that's what the Navy says we need. And we and President Obama in his last couple of budgets laid out the way to get there. Um, like so many other things, this is one thing, they promise big and then just don't deliver. I mean, his budgets have been smaller in terms of the Navy than President Obama's. Uh, what about with the new infusion uh, in this in the current well, budget that was passed? Congress has been has been continuing to build ships. They have sort of ignored the Trump budget on on that. And here's the issue I got with the new infusion of money. Number one, to what end? What are you going to do with it? Number two, I'm afraid they're going to go back to what they were doing, which is just spending way too much and getting way too little in return. I mean. From the time I got there till the time I left, we cut the price or the cost of a destroyer by $300 million per ship. And that's on a $1.8 billion ship. We cut the, the cost of a littoral combat ship in half uh, from a little over $800 million to $450 million in more capable ships. About 10 Virginia-class attack submarines uh, for about $2 billion each, paid $18 billion. Now, this is math in public, but 2 times two time 10 is not 18. Mm-hmm. We bought uh, 10 and paid for 9. It's like having one of those punch cards, you know, buy 9 subs and get your 10th one free. Yes. And so <laughs> we, we drove down the cost, usually dramatically, of every single ship and ship type, and aircraft. Uh, I bought 35% more aircraft than had been mm-hmm. bought in the seven years before. And so, you know, Rumsfeld very famously talked about transformation in the U.S. military. Well, I decided when I got there that the transformation he was talking about was transforming public money into private money because mm-hmm. we were just paying too much. We weren't driving hard bargains. We weren't paying enough attention. So your concern is that we're going to go back to that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's not really an explanation of why we need that much more money. Uh, okay, what are you going to use it for? And exactly how are you going to use it? Yeah, one of the great uh, issues that you took on there was the um, uh, diversity in the force. That, has been a ma- that was a major thrust of your concerns uh, as secretary. Uh, we've seen uh, some backsliding on that uh, from this administration um, talk to me about what you did and talk to me about what they're doing. Okay. Well, don't ask, don't tell, one of the dumbest laws you can possibly have uh, or have had. A, a more diverse force is a stronger force. And if you look back in history, when the armed services were integrated during and after World War II, um, same arguments were used against it when the number of women were uh, being recruited were increased in the 80s and their roles expanded in the 90s. Same arguments uh, when the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which I pushed very hard for, when uh, when I overruled the Marines and put women in ground combat, armor, artillery, infantry. Uh, same arguments and same thing with transgender. You don't want diversity just for diversity's sake, but you want diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of experience, because if you don't have it, in a military force, you become predictable. And if you become predictable, you become defeatable. And you don't want people looking the same way. You don't want people 
thinking the same way. Diversity is a real strength in the military. And the way I approached it was you set standards, job-specific standards. Once you've done that, then gender and race and sexual orientation and gender Either you meet the standard or you don't. Yeah. doesn't matter. The only qualification to get a job ought to be the ability to do the job. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was in Manaus, Kyrgyzstan. We had a big base there. Everybody coming into or coming out of Afghanistan went through Manaus for a couple of days. And I made a speech to about seven or 800 Marines and sailors. About half were coming out, about half were going in. And afterwards, and after I shook hands and took pictures and did the stuff you do, there was a first-class petty officer, Navy first-class corpsman, medic. And he had just finished his third combat tour with the Marines. And he came up to me and he said, I just want to thank you for pushing for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It had just been repealed. He said, I've been in for 11 years, and I'm gay. And he said, my biggest fear was that I was going to be found out and kicked out. Now, here's a person, three combat tours, and yet his biggest fear was he was going to be kicked out. How much weaker does that make us? How much worse a force does that make us? Of course, and and, uh, I thought that Admiral Mullen was uh, right on point when he talked about the fact that we were turning honorable people into liars in order to serve. Yeah, and, and they want to serve. That's mm-hmm. it, it, We were asking people to lie about who they were, what they were about. And, it, and it, it's just, from every standpoint, it's wrong and it's dumb militarily. Now, I think that the don't ask, don't tell, so gays, women in ground combat, I think though I put women on submarines, opened up special forces, I think those things are pretty much established. The one thing that was still left out there, because very frankly, the Pentagon didn't move fast enough on transgender. I mean, we could have, we could have solved that under President Obama, but um, it wasn't done, and it was left for the next administration. Uh, but we've studied it for a year, I mean, in, in great detail. It. It was going to cost practically nothing in terms of medical. It was going to strengthen unit cohesion. The numbers are pretty small, but again, these are patriots. These are people who want to serve. And for that to be reversed by tweet, just out of out of prejudice and bias, and to rile up your base or whatever. Uh, now. Courts have not let it stand. I mean, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a Marine, Joe Dunford, right after the tweet last year, issued an, you know, he issued an order saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're right. going to treat these Mattis people. Secretary has been pretty strong on that. Well. And, um, you know, so this notion that all this work's been done and these people felt safe, this transgender felt safe coming out, uh, joining the military, and then suddenly the rug gets jerked out from under. It's not the way to treat patriots, and it's not the way to, to build a great military force either. You mentioned about us, uh, uh, about the Navy uh, and the Straits of Hormuz and the, 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 the presence there. 
Um, and since you're an expert on the area, you know, now uh, we've seen this very, very stark um, uh, intensification uh, of the rivalry between Sunni and Shia, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, based on what you know, and you know more than any of us because you privy to intelligence all eight years, uh, and based on what you see, uh, what are your concerns uh, about that, that re- relative to our own security? And do you see, do you see the potential for uh, new conflicts erupting there as a result of these rivalries? Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, Saudi has always seen Iran as an existential threat to them. Iran's so much bigger. Uh, and has such a more diverse economy than um, than the Saudis. Iran Iran knows that if it tried to close the Straits of Hormuz, that the U.S. Navy could could reopen them. Um, now it would put a huge dent in the world economy if they did that. But the thing that worries me, sort of down the road is, you know, right now this president is talking about ditching the nuclear deal with, mm-hmm. uh, with Iran. Iran. If he does that and Iran starts pursuing a, a, a nuclear weapon again, which I'm pretty sure they would and it wouldn't take them long, uh, the way John Oliver put it is it'll take them 10 years under the deal, zero years if the deal is reneged and zero is less than 10 um, but then I think you set off uh, a really frightening arms race in the Middle East because Saudi, I don't think, could face a nuclear Iran without seeking a weapon of their of their own. You would, in in so many ways, put Israel more at risk because of the potential for for spillover. And the the Iranian military is getting better. Uh, they're still not in our class, but uh, but they're getting better. And if you don't diffuse that in that part of the world, I mean, these sectarian rivalries are ones that it's really hard to negotiate uh, because because they're based on religious right. beliefs and deeply held religious beliefs. And so, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a concern f- for for all of us, and I don't think. This administration is helping at all to um, to to try to keep that genie in the bottle. The uh, the other place where the Navy plays no small role is is uh, uh, in this uh, very fraught situation relative to uh, Korea, uh, North Korea. Um, what do you make of how events are unfolding there, uh, and uh, and? I also want you to address what a war in on the peninsula there uh, would mean from a military standpoint. Um, I'll answer the first part of that one, the last part of that one first. A war there would be almost unimaginable because uh, North Korea has thousands and thousands of artillery pieces that can reach Seoul. And Seoul is really close to the 
demilitarized zone. I didn't realize how close it was till I went as secretary and took a helicopter from Seoul up to the DMZ. And it's, it's, you can see both of them at the same time. So, you know, you've got a lot of artillery, a lot of special forces. Uh, even if North Korea didn't use a nuclear weapon, casualties, civilian casualties, would be in the hundreds of thousands, if not in the millions, um, which is just incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And it would, it would almost certainly crash the world's economy if, if, if something like that happened. So, I mean, that is, really is the nightmare scenario. We would win militarily in the end. But at a very high cost. But, but high what, cost. what about the other? Now, so, let's, so that was the path the president appeared to be heading down. Now we, we've got the polar opposite. We've got a summit coming up, very strong signals from the president that maybe a deal is at, is at hand. Um, and in fairness, many administrations have tried to handle North Korea and not with great success. So he's uh, blazing his own trail here. What are your uh, concerns and what are your expectations from this upcoming summit? My concerns are that uh, that they're going to continue to do exactly the same thing while playing him. Uh, you know, the, the, the announcement that they didn't need any more tests, uh, that mirrored a lot about what um, Kim Jong-un's father said at one point. I mean, he blew up a, a missile launcher at one point to show he was serious about talks. He wasn't. Um, and went right on doing what he was doing. Uh, my other concern is that there doesn't seem to be, at least from the press reports, a whole lot of preparation. I mean, uh, the president seems like he is planning to go in there and winging it. He Art of the deal. Well, and he, he has been shown that he's a terrible negotiator, both in the private sector and in, uh, and in government. And so, so that worries me, that uh, you don't have a sense of here's where we need to get to, and here's how you can verify it. Here's how you can make sure that both sides stick to, to their... Um, to their part of the bargain. And, you and the he's going to... You, you mentioned the Iran deal well, earlier. That had very strong verification elements to it. Yeah, and why would North Korea trust us if we pull out of the Iran deal? Mm-hmm. Why would... Why would why would why would they think their deal was going to be any different that we would change our mind in a couple of years? And given the uh, history of North Korea, as you mentioned before, the question I guess is, how do you get to the point where you can trust them? And I think one of the things that other presidents have worried about, rightfully so, is the minute you walk into a room with him, you have raised his stature mm-hmm. to um, to a world leader. Because uh, the President of the United States, regardless of who it is, being in the same room and negotiating with uh, with the head of North Korea just gave him a huge prestige bump. Yes, and that, that's, a, that's a victory in and of itself. Well, we shall see what happens. I mean, as an American and as a, as a, uh, a resident of this planet, uh, one hopes that something happens here that is positive we uh, because this is a dangerous situation but as you point out it's it's fraught with all kinds of uh, of difficulties and one hopes the president 
recognizes them. In any case, Ray Mabus, it's great to have you here. I, uh, uh, I appreciate your service and your wonderful story. And, uh, and I'm so pleased that you're at the Institute of Politics today. Thanks, David. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.